In this last session, Bobby and Renee answer difficult questions that surround the complementarian view. Renee describes what a complementarian woman looks like compared to the following rigid traditionalism or progressivism. Renee, let's let's go back now in this last session. Uh, what we want to do is kind of look at the forest. Uh, in the first session, we looked at some of the trees. We looked at sort of playing it forward. Now we're going to go a little broader. And one of the things that uh, that you put in the book, I think is really helpful, is the idea of constructs, uh, stereotypes, and archetypes. So real quickly, can you walk us through this? Because I think people will find it super helpful. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So these are just three different ways that uh, people are understanding what it means to be a man and a woman, to be male and female. So the first option is that it's a construct. And that is basically what it means to be male and female is an invention of human culture. And this view holds that at some point in our history, we settled on two genders, male and female, but that doesn't mean we can't move beyond a gender binary and um, we can see it as normal and healthy when um, people separate their gender from their sex. That's kind of where we are in North America right now. Then there's stereotypes. Um, This is where... um, Male and female are kind of distilled by their um, biology or even maybe one part of their biology. Um, it's it's where you generalize or flatten out what it means to be male and female. So um, that's like um, in, in literature, there might be the virgin or the vamp. And it just means like a woman is just known by her sexuality and that's it. And then there's archetypes, which is what scripture holds out for us. Um, An archetype is like an original pattern or symbol, a model of which everything else is a representation or a a copy. It's different from a stereotype because we're not simplifying or flattening out, um, but it's actually a really rich, fleshed out version of what it means to be male and female. And Scripture continues to hold out um, the archetype of what it means to be male and female. And it does it um, in some ways we want to discuss in this session today. Boy, that's really good. Let me just add a comment about this, because several years ago, I got to know a woman who had lived in a lesbian relationship uh, in her teenage years. And uh, she really questioned whether she was a lesbian And then eventually she became uh, convinced that wasn't true. But here's what happened, Renee. Uh, She did not fit the uh, stereotype of a woman. You know, she didn't particularly like to wear dresses or, you know, get all prettied up and things like that. And so in her mind, because she was by nature more of a tomboy, in her mind, that meant, well, I must be I must be a lesbian then. And uh, she had grown up in a pretty strict home. Uh, where, you know, gender roles were real specific, almost to overstatement. And I I just think this whole concept of archetype is so helpful because there's variations that you can have the archetype of a man and a woman, which scripture teaches, but in the archetypes, there is some variability where it's not one size fits all. 
And I think that that's so important for us to encourage that uh, in our families and in our local churches. So good job on that. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I I will say that um, our that is our stereotype right now. That that your sexuality in North America, um, humanity has been reduced to a stereotype of your sexuality. Sex is something we do. It is not something we are. That's and right. And so um, we'll carry our genders into the new creation, but we we won't be having sex. Sorry to be so blunt, but but it's important to and understand. We, and we won't be married, but we'll carry. We will it not be us. married. That's right. And so it's important to understand this be, and to be clear. Use clear language here because our culture is very confused. Yeah, and you know, some people with the whole new creation type thing are saying that male and female will be gone in the new creation and all that. And they're really overstating what we can, we know we, we won't be married. We know we'll have new bodies, imperishable, uh, spiritual uh, bodies like first Corinthians 15. But a lot of people are overstating that there won't be, you know, male and female in eternity. And I don't, I don't know that we know that. And it, we got to be careful about overstating things. Hey, back on the archetype thing. Let me just read this uh, to be male or female is a matter of acknowledging our biological genetics and aligning with universal archetypes. We would say the archetypes from scripture are consistent with the biology. An archetype is the original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies. This is different from a stereotype, which is a fixed image and oversimplification of an original. Seeing maleness and femaleness as archetypes encourages men and women to acknowledge sex-based behaviors and roles while simultaneously recognizing a spectrum of gifts, talents, and inclinations. I think that that's, that's really good. Hey, Renee, we're going to talk about the bigger picture on scripture. But before that, in the break, you were talking to me about one of the typical things you find uh, when you're being asked to help a, an eldership or a leadership work through these issues. Talk to us, uh, if you would, please, and share again what you shared with with um, me and the others in the green room. Yeah, so um, I am I am typically, well, not typically, only being asked to come speak um, to leadership groups who are considering um, an egalitarian posture because hard complementarians, by virtue of their beliefs, wouldn't ask me to come speak to them at all, right? <laughs> There's no surprise. So I don't speak to people who, um, to leadership who is strongly hard complementarian. And what I have found without fail every time I come is either the senior minister slash pastor has a child who is living an LGBTQ plus lifestyle and would like to introduce egalitarianism to their congregation, or the staff is already been, they've been discipled by the culture. They're aligned. Many of the staff, if not all, are aligned with the LGBTQ agenda. And they would like to start that process with the egalitarian um, theology played out in their church every time. Wow. Every time. Now, do you think they come to me and tell me that? No, they don't. But you see it played out because you can get on social media and you can see their children and you can talk to their staff and you can find out <laughs> where they are. I had a pastor come to me shocked 
that his entire staff was egalitarian and LGBTQ affirming. He's like, I've never taught that. And I said, well, have you taught anything? And he said, no. That's exactly what's happening. We in our churches were afraid to talk about this because we know some people won't like it. And so we don't talk about it. And then the world totally out disciples all of our people. And we wake up one day and we think, oh, no, we got to address it now. And I just want to encourage everybody uh, that we have to, um, I think uh, there's a guy, Brian Tracy, wrote a book years ago called Eat the Frog. We got to eat the frog now. It's better to pay the price now and teach on it than to find out later we weren't teaching and it's too late and everybody's you know going to rebel because they've been won over by the world. So. And here's the deal, Bobby. This is not a frog. This is a banquet. Yeah. This is a feast. This is the best news on the planet for a world that is believing doctrines taught by demons. We have good news for people. We do not have bad news for people. Yeah, that's so good. And, and, and so, yes, eat the banquet. Ooh, that's so good. All right, sister, <clears throat> jump in and let's talk about uh, a broad view of scripture and why that's important. Talk to us about what we're calling circumstantial evidence, which is really more of just looking at the forest of the entirety of Scripture. Uh, I want to contrast what you're about to say with some some people have told me, yeah, this all just boils down to one disputed passage. And I'm like, no, it's hundreds of passages and it's major frameworks. So please talk to us about it. Yes, so I want to give credit where credit is due. Many thanks to Alastair Roberts thinking and writing on this topic and helping teach me um, this principle, which is scripture is filled with circumstantial and direct or specific evidence. So in the legal realm, circumstantial evidence is general evidence taken by observing um, what has happened. So this would be like the suspect was seen fleeing on foot from the crime scene or the internet browser history showed that they looked up how to commit this crime. And then specific or direct evidence is like fingerprints at the scene of the crime or video footage showing them committing the crime. And so we have both kinds and we want to just walk through. Interestingly, most court cases are decided, criminal cases are decided by circumstantial evidence. It's very compelling and it's held to a very, in a very high esteem in the legal world. So let's look at some circumstantial evidence. Um, Genesis one through three, um, we see complementarity over and over and over again, not just between male and female, but in all of creation, light and dark, um, dry land and sea, land creatures and, and sea creatures. And so we see this over and over and over again, uh, sun and the moon. And so we want to just recognize that, yeah, Genesis one through three, we have this beautiful complementary nature of creation itself. So good. Abraham and Sarah, um, when I worked for David Young at North Boulevard, he's one of the Renew founders as well. Um, I said, what's this deal about Sarah in scripture? Like, like Paul says, you know, Sarah called Abraham her Lord and obeyed him. What's up with that? And he's like, look, Renee, Jews held Abraham and Sarah in the highest of esteem. She was like an archetypal woman. Yes. She, she was the woman to which all women aspired. And so she, why? Because even 
when she thought her husband was making a really bad decision, she had to be thinking (laughs) many times she held her tongue and um, let God take care of things, which I thought was really interesting. And then we have, and then you've got in first Peter three, first Peter actually commands that wives are to be submissive to their husbands the way Sarah was to Abraham. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I wish Abraham would have asked Sarah's opinion, and we don't have that in there. Yeah. Abraham's, you know? Abraham's an example of a bumbling man, not not uh, always getting it right. Yeah, he failed in his headship toward her, and God and God protected her, um, and stepped in and closed the wombs of all the people in the Pharaoh's house and whatnot. You see Nabal and Abigail as well. You see her stepping in when he um, is extremely disrespectful in an honor shame culture. She goes and makes things right. And um, I just love that story. I think it's so beautiful. We see uh, priests and prophets. Um, the priests were all male, Bobby. <laughs> I now don't know what to about, say here. <laughs> no, <laughs> let's talk. Let's, I'm going to jump in here a little bit on priests. Because until I, I did a really deep dive on this, I didn't realize a couple of things. And Rick Oster was helpful on this, that priests in the Old Testament, now I always knew that priests in the Old Testament were male. Uh, God prohibited. It was not female, just male. Uh, In the pagan cultures, they had female priests. And and yet when God uh, instituted the Levitical laws, uh, he made sure that priests were only males. And then a lot of people don't know this, but the role of the priest was primarily the teacher of scripture. And the priests by the first century took on the role of rabbi, which were men, and when Paul writes 1 Timothy 2, the best background for that culturally is the role of the rabbi who is modeled after the priest in the early Jewish community. So that's kind of the, the model uh, that we, we now have, you know, in the, in the local church. Uh, it's, it's more of a role that goes back to the priest, and their job wasn't just cutting up meats and things like that, but they were teachers of God's word. For the people of God. Yeah, they were. Um, Alistair Roberts, I think, says they use sacred violence, which I like. You know, the Levites, which were the priests, would be the priestly clan when there was sin in the camp. Um, you know, Moses says, God says to Moses, you have them go through and you have them kill their friends. They must they go through and kill their friends. I don't know. I wouldn't want that job. I, I think it's interesting that. Um, that the that men are especially equipped to be able to commit sacred violence. Every king of Israel had killed someone. Yeah. I think almost everyone had killed someone. We don't like to talk about that, but but that is what scripture is showing us. And it's giving us circumstantial evidence about what it means to be a man. That there is a strength here that not only creates borders of protection and safety, but that takes care of the wolves and the lions and the bears. That that are coming after the people, so it's really important. And then prophets, everyone loves to talk about prophets because we have Deborah, and and Deborah is highly esteemed. She's not only a prophet; she's also a judge, and that is important information. Um, but Deborah herself, in her victory song, sees herself as a mother who wants to raise up sons to protect Israel 
She implores Barak to please go out and do what he is supposed to do for his people. And because he won't go without her, she says, okay, well, then the glory is going to be given to a woman, not to you. So she knows that Israel will thrive when it has its um, men rising up and doing what they're supposed to do. And that's Mm -hmm. what she's asking them to do. Um, Besides that, there are different kinds of prophets in the Old Testament. Um, Alistair Roberts makes this point that there are covenant founding prophets like Moses. There are prophets who write scripture for us, um, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. All of those are male. And then we have lower level, small, like apprentice prophets and prophets who um, lead groups of people. And those are male and female. And that gives us good information. That's not to demean Deborah, but it puts Deborah in her proper context with all the men around her. Wow. We have kings and queens. I love Proverbs and Song of Solomon because Proverbs is kind of a reset of the deception of Eve. You know, Adam was not deceived. Paul says Eve was deceived and became a sinner. I think Adam was a rebel or he was too weak. You know, the text kind of leaves it open for interpretation. But in Proverbs, we see wisdom personified as a woman. So it's this it's this read. It's this PR campaign for women. The help we're supposed to be as wisdom. Yeah. Boy, and I'll tell you what, uh, I just went over this this week. Uh, the the godly woman in Proverbs thirty one, wow. Now I know for a lot of women it's like don't don't talk about that too much because you're going to create a too high of a bar for me. But when you talk about a strong help, your your word Renee, I just love it because I think that's exactly what's going on there. She buys considers a field and buys it. You know she yeah. she she's not a wimpy. Oh, I can't do anything without my husband. No, no, she's a strong woman. Uh, strong woman of God. And then uh, Jesus, uh, of course, he elevated women, but Jesus only chose 12 male apostles, and he could have chosen one women. And yet, in in uh, his divine wisdom, he uh, sticks with primogeniture, and he s- sticks with the concept that uh, there's a male headship role in the family and in the local church. Well, Renee, um, let's just... Uh, I want to sort of uh, move to some concluding statements that I think will be helpful for people. But of course, in the early church, women prayed and prophesied in the gathered church in the presence of men, but only qualified men are to teach and exercise authority. That's that authoritative teaching, according to 1 Timothy 2. Uh, And we know that in Renew Network, there's some variability there, but uh, in terms of how each church practices it, but all of our leaders in Renew agree that the main preacher-teacher, God intended it to be male. And then only qualified men are to serve as elders and overseers, according to 1 Timothy 3. Now, some people have challenged about 1 Timothy 3, uh, Renee, and uh, I just want to, maybe I'll close by adding a few words about elders uh, that when you read the descriptions of elders uh, in the um, English translations of the New Testament, it's pretty clear when you're reading it through, they're described as men. Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 7, 
First uh, Peter five one through three, and and Acts chapter twenty. Uh, some people have argued recently that uh, the description of elders or overseers in First Timothy three is actually more gender neutral. It says anyone who desires is you know uh, the office of overseer. Uh, again, that can all be uh, neutral. The difficulty is the word overseer is in the masculine, and the adjectives are in the masculine. Uh, And so the English translations have it right. If you're following scripture, you're going to see that only men were elders. And of course, it only makes sense. Before 1 Timothy 3, 1, you have 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, which state that you know, in that context, however you want to understand it, you know, women weren't to teach or exercise authority over men. It's not like Paul would say that and then turn around and say, oh, by the way, you can appoint women elders. It just elders overseas. It just, again, it's it's trying to find in the text uh, an unnatural reading to support uh, conclusions that we want to have in the text. Renee, I want you to address this before we close here. Uh, a lot of honest, good work. Uh, I have to give credit to you. I think you work much harder on the workbook than I did. Everybody has a copy of it. And uh, in, in your ideal world, how would these church leaders use that workbook? Of course, they go to Amazon.com and buy copies. But assuming they're doing that, how would you like them to use it? Yeah, so I would love for you to use it um, with your staff. Um, your staff must be able to articulate what it means to be a man and a woman, why your church um, holds the structure that it does. Um, And again, I can't say it enough. This is good news. And it's meant to be a partner to this book, which when you have really deeper questions, which we've had some great questions we couldn't get to today, that's going to be addressed in here. We've interviewed amazing scholars Um, I always say that I am the lay person who interviews the smart people and writes it so the rest of us can all understand it. And that's what I do. Um, There's lots of really great thinkers out there and it's written in an accessible way. So use it with your staff, but then have your staff push it out to their people. It, it, the trajectory you choose on this makes a difference. It makes a difference in the Monday morning life of every person in your congregation, of your families, of how they treat one another in their home, of how they raise their children. Um, and for sure, you know their children are being discipled by the world if they're in government schools and on the on their phones, which which the numbers are telling us they're on their phones six to eight hours a day, depending on their age. You've got to equip your people to think counterculturally, and that's what I hope uh, this will do. One thing I would like everybody to know, hopefully you'll take a chance and just read through it. It's really designed for good conversations mm-hmm. so that, uh, and it's not a lot of reading, like we said, to begin with, yeah. it's like just under 80 pages, uh, five sessions for conversations. It's a workbook format so that people can have it and think it through before they meet. And we try to expose to the three different views while we advocate for what we believe is the most biblical view, because we believe that we need to be clear, forthright, uh, and honor God that we would be faithful to him and that we would create an obedient people who could live under God's blessings. 